0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and I'll be your host for this episode. And today, I am just just so happy, excited to talk to my amigo, Dr. Miguel Valerio about Sovereign Joy, Afro-Mexican Kings and Queens, 1539 to 1640 that was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Sovereign Joy explores the performance of festive Black kings and queens among Afro-Mexicans between 1539 and 1640, It illustrates how the first African and Afro-Creole people in colonial Mexico transformed their ancestral culture into a shared identity among Afro-Mexicans, with particular focus on how public festival participation expressed their culture and subjectivities, as well as redefine their colonial condition and social standing. As the book beautifully shows, through performance, Afro-Mexicans affirm their being, the sovereignty of joy and the joy of sovereignty. Dr. Miguel Valerio is Assistant Professor of Spanish at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a scholar of the African diaspora in the Iberian world and teaches courses in Afro-Colonial Culture and Contemporary Afro-Latin American Literature and Culture. His research has focused on Black Catholic brotherhoods, or confraternities, and Afro-Creole festive practices in colonial Latin America, especially Mexico and Brazil. His work has been published in several academic journals, and he's also the co-editor of Indigenous and Black Confraternities in Colonial Latin America, Negotiating Status Through Religious Practices. Miguel, welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Thank you, Isabel. It's a pleasure to be here with you, a dear friend.
1: Now, I have so many questions about your book uh, that I think we'll have to continue this at some t- other time, hopefully, over some good food and drinks.
2: Yes. <laughs> In Salvador.
1: <clears throat> yes, hopefully, Salvador or any other uh, sunny part of the world. Yes. But uh, let's begin as I usually do with these interviews. I'll start by asking you to share with us your book's origin story.
2: Uh, it was um, the stray flower. I was I was at a conference this weekend, and I was asking people this, some their origin story. And this book has a you know stray flower origin story. I was taking a class. Uh, the person who would end up being my dissertation advisor. Lisa Boyd was writing her own book on festivals in colonial in South American colonial mining towns. And she developed a course on colonial cities and festivals. And we were reading Penal Dia del Castillo description of that festival in Mexico City that I analyzed in Chapter One. And I was reading the text and I came across the reference to, to the Black Kings and Queens. Uh, in that festival, and um, it just uh, something, it just piqued my curiosity. I had never seen anything like that in all my years of studies, and um, so I went to class uh, with questions, and I then began to write a paper, doing uh, research for the paper. Uh, The paper was very well received. It won a prize, and uh, then then I, I I began looking for more examples of this in Mexico, uh, where I discovered that it had not been studied. So it has been studied, as you very well know, uh, in Brazil. This is a very well store, uh, very well studied uh, tradition, and um, Peru, uh, Buenos Aires, uh, Panama to Alexa, a lesser extent, and even Cuba. But no one had uh, has studied it in Mexico. And I found all these examples um, in Mexico uh, that, as you noted um, in some comments, it puts Mexico at the center of the formation of, of the Black Atlantic very early on, because these are the first example that we have of this tradition in the Americas, and they are appearing in Mexico, a place that is not normally thought as an important site of the development of Afro-Latin American uh, history and culture.
1: Yes, so tell me how did you decide and why did you decide to investigate this particular time frame?
2: So that also was um, kind of given to me. The first example that I found was 1539, uh, which is the, the example study in chapter one, and then the last example that I found was 1640, so that um, when I was uh, when I was a kid, I had this book that I have since lost and have not been able to 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 find, which was called Hundred and One Poems." And the idea is that if a hundred is a perfect number, a hundred and one is more than a perfect number. In, in any event, um, besides that personal connection, uh, it seems to have been given to me to have that one hundred and one. Uh, become something permanent uh, for me in the way that, that that these festivals were giving to me. So that 1640 was the last example that I found of a text describing Afro-Mexican uh, festive practices. Uh, although I look hard and wide for other examples, and in the conclusion, I... I deal a little bit with um, with one of the other one of the only other texts that has makes a very minor mention to Mexicans engaging in in, in festive traditions, but uh, uh, it, it's not nothing compared to the those four examples that I found in those one hundred and one years. But it's also significant that it ends in sixty forty uh, because that's the end of the Iberian Union. And that's also the end of the importation of Central Africans to Mexico. So that be, between 1580 and 1640 is a time where the largest number of, of people of African descent are brought to Mexico, and uh, a tradition that is linked to Central Africa, and it's also um, is uh, and the, most of them are coming from Central Africa that are being brought. Uh, uh, to Mexico at that time, and then that ends in 1640 as well. So it's also uh, historically significant that it ends there.
1: Yes, and I'll ask you both about uh, these Afro-Mexicans in that period and about you know this question of why uh, the story ends here in a minute. But I wanted to, let's open uh the book, right? Start by the gorgeous cover and by this title. I think I mentioned to you that your book had me at the title. So uh, I want us to unpack this a bit because this is not only you know a, a great an important contribution that your book is making, but it, you are also dialoguing with this exciting uh, new body of scholarship on decolonial joy that you reference in, in your book. So first, how do you define sovereignty?
2: So uh, in the in the book, I have. Uh two definition identified two types of sovereignty. one is the communal sovereignty that uh, the people staging these um, these performances they belong to confraternities to brotherhoods and as confraternities and brotherhoods they have this communal sovereignty in the sense that for black communities this was the only safety net and uh, they had autonomy in setting their charitable, as well as their cultural priorities, um, that although blacks were prosecuted in Mexico for this tradition, they insisted on performance, uh, performing with this tradition. And so there you have a, a, a communal sovereignty, and then what I what I call discursive sovereignty, which is the sovereignty that is uh, that is staged in the performance itself. Right? It is a symbolic sovereignty it has huge political implications especially in the context of mexico where which is the only place where blacks were um killed by the state for for their festive traditions and uh, so so staging these performances in this world uh, is so powerful and there is also a discursive sovereignty by appearing uh with you know with royalty with sovereignty uh, that expresses um this, this communal sovereignty and this discursive uh, sovereignty uh, about uh, the way I define it is uh, the stories that we allow to tell ourselves about ourselves, right, that we tell ourselves and others about uh, what we are. And here, you know, they tell a very powerful story about not being uh, helpless uh, uh, individuals, but rather being a powerful collective that has sovereignty in their community and also can uh, stage this, this powerful expression of black power, black joy also.
1: Yes, then let's let's talk joy. Um, tell me about joyful defiance. Uh, I think this, I, again, I've mentioned this to you before, but this is a concept that resonated with me even before I had a name for it or a clear definition. Uh, and I, I, as I told you, I wish I had your book when I was writing mine, because I'm particularly interested in this idea that as you write here, to study joy is not to forget
0: pain.
2: Uh, right. So that in mean, the black experience, uh, in the last five hundred years, uh, of course, the, the larger story or the the story that is at the forefront uh, in most of the time is a story of, of slavery and all its violence. Um, but and so we don't forget that, that that's part of the story. But there is also not to see the whole story as black people saw it themselves, right? So that I began the book with a preface about the summer of George Floyd and people marching and dancing in the street. Uh, you know, they were claiming black life matters in a joyful way, right? So that that, um, that these expressions of joy are, they, they, they are an expression that black life matters is a joyful defiance, right? A world that seeks to impose a sort of social death we joyfully defy that, uh, not to have joy, just being joyful. is is you know, it's a defiance of that uh, cosmology, of that cosmogony, of the, will of the way of being, the way of the world, of working, uh, that is defined just uh, by being joyful. And um, we see that throughout the history of the black experience. And, of course, uh, we see it here in Mexico, especially when, these Afro-Mexicans are performing after, uh, or in the middle of, of political turmoils, as in 1612, when uh, when the Afro-Mexicans who elected kings and queens uh, were first exiled or sold out, and then eventually some were uh, executed by the state.
1: Yes, and I think the, the framework that you establish here uh, will be, you know, used and, and very useful to people who are looking at very different uh, topics. Uh, as you know, I'm studying a very different time and place, and these, these ideas really resonated with me. But let's talk about sources now. What kinds of sources allow you to tell these stories how do you find them? You already sort of mentioned the, the, the material that you found when you were uh, as a student. Um, and tell me about this diasporic approach that you employ in the book that I found really interesting.
2: Yeah, so the sources, um, uh, I found uh, three, three festival accounts that are straight out festival accounts. Um, chapter four is the festival account that is more, Independent, right? The other, the other festival accounts that describe in one sentence or three or four paragraphs uh, black performance, whereas Chapter Four is the only festival accounts uh, and one of the few colonial texts that is dedicated in its entirety uh, to a black topic. Um, but then, I also found um, archival sources that dealt, and especially with the um, with accusing. Uh, or conflating, but a pur- purposeful and mischaracterization and conflating of festive black kings and queens uh, with rebellion, with revolt, with marunaj, uh, and, um, and these sources. And um, so especially, especially the archival sources had been studied before under two trends. Uh, a trend in Latin America takes in at face value, uh, the trend in the U.S., uh, criti- you know, is critical, reads them critically, but no one had looked at those archival sources and said, what if what is going on here is part of this larger festive traditions because they didn't have the straight-out festive accounts that to counter those uh, those archival sources with. Uh, but then, so that even so, the sources that I found for Mexico uh, were seven sources, they were, um, In some instances, very short. I mean, Día del Castillo is one sentence. Uh, The other one is three paragraphs. The the archival sources are three to four pages. So very short, very short sources. And Mexico, uh, the practice in Mexico doesn't make any sense without looking at the broader, right, and its connection to the broader African diaspora. So this is when I developed this diasporic framework uh, because as I do in chapter one comparing something that happened in that is described as Mexico City in 1539 and then in Brazil in 1762 there are so many similarities right that we see that we're dealing here with the same tradition and then uh, when it came to the music uh, it was also um, it was also impossible to make sense of the music that accompanied these performances without causing this wide, Diasporagnet uh, to look at the kind of musics that were part of this performance.
1: Yes, yes, and uh, again, it helped me understand so much better other uh, festive practices that I was looking at when when you described this approach. So um, that was that was incredibly helpful <laughs> for me. And you were you were talking about this a little bit, right? Uh, how you Place uh, Mexico City as quote uh, a central site of the birth of the Black Atlantic and the cultural transformation set in motion by imperial expansion, or as a central site of the Black Atlantic. And I, I was born and raised in, in Bahia, Brazil, and I lived in northern Mexico for a while, where black experiences were practically invisible for me, right? So as somebody who comes from Bahia, goes to northern Mexico. So I was surprised to see those descriptions. Can you paint for us a picture then of the lives and experiences of Afro-descendants in Mexico in this period? It's such a a vivid, beautiful, uh, live image that you painted in your book that I honestly was not expecting.
2: So in this time, we have in Mexico City City, somewhere from 20,000 to maybe 40,000 people of African descent. Um, uh, There is a map in the book uh, that was done just of the residences of women, of black women in Mexico City. And if you look, there's a dot (laughs) in every house. There's a dot in every block as some of those houses were the houses where women work as domestic workers, but some of those houses were houses owned by black women. Uh, One of the cases that I deal with with uh, with Chapter 2 is an event that took place at the house uh, of a black woman, uh, Melchiora de Monterrey, and, um, well, it is called her house, and um, it is likely that it was her house, but her house was seen to have also been... The meeting place of the black community, and um, in one account, the the viceroy says that that's where they did um, playing cards and gam- uh, and drinking. Uh, but also, what we see in the document is um, they're not they're not gambling or drinking. They're they're eating and dancing. That's what we see in a document that is accusatory. It tells us they had a great banquet and that they dance a great deal. Right. So we have. Um, We have the uh, the three, three, three can focus on three things about life, uh, black lives in this time in Mexico City. Uh, The labor, right? Blacks were involved um, in a lot of the labor. They were uh, coach riders, they were bricklayers, they were involving all all the trades. Um, Some were artisans, some were artists, silversmiths, goldsmiths. Uh, They were involved in all the trades. Then you have the confraternity, so that in Mexico City, you have uh, 10 confraternities, which is about the same number of, confraterni- of black confraternities you had in 18th century Salvador, when Salvador was one of the largest black city in the world, right? So you have here a comparable, right? Less, Way less black people, but the same number of black confraternities are, are there, uh, serving uh, important um, social and cultural uh, ends. And then you have uh, the gathering... Uh, for the confraternal life, the election of kings and queens, the celebration of the big holidays, and the eating and drinking, so the feasting, right? Which will be part of both Christmas, Easter, but also if there's a funeral, as you know, uh, in Black culture, it's also accompanied uh, by feasting. So it's a vibrant, it's a very vibrant um, uh, uh, Black community and life uh, that is going on in Mexico City, especially at this time, and if you go to colonial museums and you look at paintings of the squares, right, or, or, or casta paintings, or there's there's one paint one series that is all the months, and uh, about about five of the months have black people engaged in different activities uh, in Mexico City, so there were a big a large a large presence there.
1: that's another thing that i uh i was i really loved about your the book is how we engaged again just going back uh to the sources with not only written sources but uh your meticulous analysis of of images and uh your conversations about music and all that so Again, I I can't uh, tell people how much I love this book. But uh, speaking of things I love, you probably have guessed that chapter four is my favorite chapter. I've been waiting for it for a while since we talked about Queens of the South in Salvador a while ago. But can you describe to folks the performance uh, uh, that you're talking about in chapter four and why do you think it is so important um i'm interested here in also for you to discuss uh something that you mentioned here that this performance marks the maturation of african mexicans creole cultural consciousness so i know i asked a lot we can break it down if you
2: want yeah well no but i mean so yeah so this uh this text uh was one of the, the 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 greatest find of the dissertation project i i mean I did find it through someone had studied it and I, I mentioned the person who had studied but i don't i didn't agree of course uh with the reading of the text because it um it was read from from a different perspective uh and they only had done like two pages on this text uh so i i <clears throat> i did as you know a long analysis of the text of the poetry of each performance uh, that is that is relevant to, to the analysis. There um, going on. I just found the performances themselves and the language fascinating, and uh, even in this text, we can you can see how ephrastic uh, all the all the description of performances are. They're very. That's why I found visual culture very helpful to, to do this work because the the texts themselves are very visual, but. Uh, for listeners, uh, to describe the performance is uh, 12 black women um, in Mexico City who perform for the incoming viceroy as the Queen of Shiva, of course, the Queen of the South uh, in the Gospel and all the implications. Um, people may be watching the Queen of the South in Telemundo. Um, so, you know, a long, a long tradition, right? A long, a long connection. But the women choose this performance and... Um, There are African things in the performance. So At one point, they incense the viceroy with, uh, with the incense, the viceroy with incense. Uh, The more, the more, um, the performance that led me to make that assertion about this is, you know, this is, this marks that Afro-Mexican culture has come of age, is a performance where the women or the symbolic language of the performance is the women are roses in a desert and the viceroy is the eagle overlooking look, over the women. Uh, of course, here, this is full of, of Mexican uh, symbology. You have the roses, the Virgin of Guadalupe appear among roses. Of course, the eagle, Mexica, uh, the Mexica Pass of, 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 the, Aztec, of the Aztec world uh, and the viceroy is eagle. Of course, the eagle represents Spanish power but it also represents, right? So that in this moment, the women declare themselves uh, Mexican, not even Afro-Mexican, just Mexican, plain and simple. And then uh, the last uh, performance um, has that phrase that became the epigraph of the book, Carbón con alma viviré a la fama, right? This um, uh, call with a soul, I will live in fame. So uh, I also read that as a consciousness of, that blacks were entering the archive, the written record, the permanent record, uh, through this performance, consciously that they were they wanted to enter the, the the permanent archive in this light, and it is absolutely important and symbolic that this is performed by women exclusively, uh, whereas the performance I studied in chapter two is performed by men exclusively, because women uh, were the ones who had. Uh, you know m- more freedom, more leadership roles in black communities, just because of the way black community, uh, black colonial society worked. Whereas that you know colonial authorities were afraid of black bodies, and therefore uh, there was more control and oversight of men and women had more freedom. And as I said, Melchor de Melchor was the it was it was the owner of this house tavern, if you will, where where the black community met. Um, women own more, had more property. So even if you think of the economics of the festival, women had more capital to, to stage uh, this performance. It is also the only of the texts that I found uh, of performance that happens um, before the viceroy, so that we know that every every time you had a viceroy, you had great festivities, and we know that blacks regularly participated in those those festivities. Uh, but this is the only text that that um, that gives account of that. So it's it's, um, it's an important text that encapsulates everything that had come uh, in the previous chapters. Uh,
1: uh, as I said, I I'm in love with that chapter. I don't know what I'm gonna teach uh, next, but I, I will find a way of assigning this. I just you know. <laughs> but uh, one thing that you highlight a lot in that chapter, and but that's you know relevant to the whole book is your insistence in reclaiming the women's agency and you mentioned right you had seen other works that uh looked at this source through a different perspective and you are looking at these sources um through a afrocentric perspective tell me about agency why is it important for you to reclaim that agency and why should we be reclaiming that agency when we analyze similar sources wherever our research is my, my lead us
2: right so as I said that uh, and you mentioned you know that text have been read and uh, different conclusions have been had been arrived one of the conclusion was that the women sh- don't show any power in the whole performance but um, I mean, that is just, I don't know how you can come to that conclusion, but if you look at the performance and, um, and you see what the women are doing, right? Um, you see the agency, but also uh, here and in the book, I'm thinking of agency as an avenue to, uh, to investigate black subjectivities, right? What is being expressed to these agencies, right? What subjectivities are being expressed, right? And one of the things that I talk about in the book, as you know, is this Afro-Creole consciousness, right? This um, localized awareness and and strategic awareness uh, of blackness uh, that the women uh, so beautifully stage and the other performances um, uh, study in the book. But also importantly to um, highlight that, you know, if if chapter three shows, you know, that perhaps men were uh, sometimes, you know, the leader of one performance, the women too, uh, and were the were the leader of, of performance, and it's a very important performance also because it takes place in the in the throne room of the Vairrigo's Palace, right? So all the other performances take place place in what is today the Zocalo, right, the, the main square in Mexico City, up to this day. But this takes place in the throne room, so it's in the heart of power, right? Uh, so the women are speaking power to power, right? The um, So I found that uh, very powerful and very, it attracted me a lot, uh, uh, that whole performance.
1: So we have, you know, chapter four with this uh, amazing performance and and then, but then in your conclusion, you ask where did the black court go, right? You're talking here about uh, an increased silence uh, in the colonial sources about, Afro Mexican festive culture and especially the tradition of festive kings and queens after 1640. Tell us a bit about your, you know, your, uh, you have some ideas here about why the reasons for this uh, silence. And um, as again, as, as an outsider here, I was wondering why haven't these practices survived in Mexico, at least as v- visibly as they have in other parts of the diaspora. Again, uh, I'm saying this as somebody from Bahia, who studied black festive kings and queens in, in the south of the United States.
2: Uh, right, so yeah, this is, this was uh, the great mystery that I dealt with in the conclusion. And uh, I mean, the, the, the answer could be a joyous answer. The answer could be that they became so normal that no one needed to tell us anymore, right? Well, that happens every day, and this is one of the texts that I quote in the conclusion says as much, says that this is a very usual and common thing among Afro-Mexicans, right? Uh, when it's talking about their confraternities and their fiestas, so that it became so common uh, that it didn't need to be written about anymore. Why it hasn't survived, um, it has to do with how the history of Mexico would develop, uh, especially in the 19th century, uh, uh, because... A black community was still large and present in Mexico City at the end of the 18th century. But then, when you get the liberal state that outlawed the church, and then it did away with confraternities, right? So that, uh, for example, confraternities have survived in Bahia in Brazil, and are still everywhere in Brazil, and are still important um, a site of a a black agency in Brazil that was taken away from from blacks in. in Mexico, and then um, that if you look at other places where this hasn't survived, it hasn't survived in Peru, it hasn't survived uh, in Uruguay or Argentina, uh, also uh, countries that also took on the discourse of, of whiteness and later Mesizaje, right? I mean, especially Mexico and Peru took on the discourse of Mesizaje or indigeneity so that black culture got pushed to the side, right? So that you said you didn't think of Mexico City as a black site because when people think black, black Mexico today, they think uh, Veracruz or Guerrero,
1: Oaxaca,
2: right? Oaxaca or Guerrero, but uh, because um, that's where our communities had freedom to continue being right, whereas uh, in Mexico City they had just been, um, they have just become part of the greater milieu and. The black identity has been erased, or the black culture has just been erased. It's not um, something that is continue. There's no continue uh, discourse about blackness in Mexico City, in Buenos Aires, and Uruguay. They continue to the earliest twentieth century, but then also also got pushed to the side there. So, but that, what we see in the in the after 1640 also is the beginning, right, of that uh, could also be read as the beginning of that erasure of black culture from Mexican culture.
1: So I have so many other questions to ask you, but I'll let folks read your amazing book and uh, learn a bit more about these uh, fascinating uh, performances. But before we go, Uh, Would you mind sharing with us what you've been up to? What's your next project? I know a little bit about that because we we met when you were doing some of your research, but can you share with our listeners what we can expect uh, from you?
2: Yeah, so uh, I'm working on my second book, which is looking at black confraternities in Brazil. There are two chapters and festivals which come towards the end of the book, uh, but I think that the new, the new research in terms of that book is looking at the churches they built as archive, as artistic expression, and also um, I'm going to be thinking a lot about what does it mean to have your own space. So that we know that brotherhoods in Mexico and elsewhere in Spanish America and the Iberian Peninsula didn't have their own churches. Um, they had altars or chapels inside convents or churches. But in Brazil, as you know, they had their own churches, and along with the with the plot that comes with the church, so that they had the church in many in the cemetery next to the church or the graveyard next to the church, and a little more space, right? Yeah. And that that also is key to to how. colonial culture, black culture was able to survive and continue these traditions in Brazil, uh, having their own space, right? So so looking at spatial autonomy, spatial sovereignty, if you will, right? And the freedom to do within that space, things that you can do, um, that you have the freedom to do to develop uh, culturally, artistic, um, the artistic expression you're able to develop by having um, that autonomy.
1: Yes, Yes. and well, I'm already anxiously waiting for uh, that as well. And uh, uh, just a a bit of shameless self-promotion. We are uh, collaborating on a special issue for the Journal of Festive Studies. Would you mind talking a little bit about that? And so that we can invite people, maybe somebody who's listening to this, who might want to contribute to it.
2: Yes, please do. So, first of all, uh, the Journal of Festive Study is uh, the first journal dedicated to festive study. Uh, it's a great and important new journal, now going into a fourth uh, fourth issue, um, uh, led now by Isabel. And um, so for the sixth issue it is that we're doing? Seventh. Seventh seventh <laughs> issue. We're yes. going to be looking at, uh, at different, uh, different forms of uh, decolonial joy. And uh, so we have some scholar lineup, but um, we are we are going to be looking. We're going to doing it not only scholarly. So um, creative work, videos, uh, music, all course of experimental uh, work uh, are welcome uh, to um, to think to help us think and to think with us uh, the colonial joy. So if you are working on something along those lines, uh, you can contact me. We might organize a panel or two for the meeting of the American Study Association in Montreal next year, and uh, the collaborators who will be in conversation leading up to the, uh, to the issue itself.
1: Yes, and we'll have a call for papers out soon. So we uh, check out uh, the Journal Office of Studies website and social media. And we look forward to receiving uh, your work. And, and I look forward to co- continuing this collaboration with you. It's always an immense pleasure to spend some time with you, my friend. And thank you so much for taking your time. I know you're a busy man. You've been mm-hmm. traveling a lot with the book. You have a, a, all sorts of personal stuff going on too. Uh, and so thank you so much.
2: No, thank you so much for for reading uh, the book so attentively, uh, for your great questions and friendship, and um, I look forward to more conversation, as you said, in sunny places (laughs) with great food.
1: (laughs) Okay, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. I just spoke with Dr. Miguel Valerio about Sovereign Joy, Afro-Mexican Kings and Queens, 1539 to 1640. It was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Check it out. It's an amazing book. I'm Isabel Machado, and until next time.